looking at this last week. And this is such a unique scene in the New Testament and really in all of Scripture that it does us well just to sit here for at least two weeks. I feel like we can't really spend too much longer than that because Mark's pace is really fast. So I think that that could, should kind of structure the way that I preach. But Mark here is spending time showing us a scene that is unlike any other scene in the New Testament, giving us a picture of a demon-possessed man, possessed by, as we said last time, maybe up to 6,000 demons. And the point of that number wasn't really in his name being legion, wasn't to give us a specific number of 6,000. It was rather to give us a picture of a Roman legion that these demons are at war with God, and there are so many of them in there, in this one man, that they call themselves legion. We're an army of Satan filling one man. And we know that unlike uh, Peter Binsfield, who you probably have never heard of and I never heard of until this past couple weeks, who was a 15th century German bishop, Roman Catholic bishop, he was looking at demon realm and trying to investigate that. And he's the one who came up with the seven deadly sins and came up with a demon for each sin. And I just want to point to you before we can continue on that uh, ambition, gluttony, and all the rest of the other seven deadly sins is not what's filling these herds of pigs. These 2,000 pigs are being filled with personages with beings who have power. And we already looked at this, but in this New Testament passage, we are kind of getting into unfamiliar territory. And part of the reason why it's unfamiliar is one thing is, like in the book of Judges, if we ever encountered a demon or an angel in person, we wouldn't be able to tell that anyways. So it's not like the demonic world is ceased working and operating in our world. But what we do have in the Gospels and what the Gospels represent is a point in time in history when demonic activity was hyper. There was so much of it in relation specifically to the Son of God coming. Jesus's ministry started with setting war against Satan It was said, John says in uh, John 3, verse 4, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And we see that right here in our text, literally on display. And the Pharisees could not have been more wrong when they accused him of binding Satan by the power of Satan. This is what Mark chapter 3 says. This is Jesus' logic. He says, how can Satan, this is chapter 3, verses 23 through 27, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it, the, that kingdom will not be able to stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises against himself and is divided, he is not able to stand and has come to an end. Obviously, Jesus is restoring this man, something that Satan would never do. When Satan fills people, he leads them to their destruction. 
deceives them to cause them to go to hell, as witnessed in the very pigs who killed themselves immediately upon having those same demons in them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 27, he ends his parable to the Pharisees saying, but no one is able to enter the strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can come and plunder his house. That's what we're seeing in this text. We're seeing that Jesus crossed the sea, really a wide, a really large lake, narrowly missing death during a a large storm, just to get to this man to plunder Satan's house and redeem him for himself. And this one man is the only person that Jesus was going to save on the other side of the sea. You would think that the response to all this, seeing this great redemption being accomplished in the life of this one man, you would think that they would respond saying, come, stay with us. I mean, that's not unique to the New Testament. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she bears witness to Christ. Jesus tells her about everything that had happened in her past, knew her past, offered her forgiveness, and she went out and told the whole town, and they wanted to follow after Jesus. And they said at the end of that, Mark chapter 4, that they believed because at first because of her testimony, but now they saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears what Jesus had done, and they believed on account of that. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. That's what you would think would happen. And see, Mark is continuing a theme here that started in Mark chapter 4 when he first set out across the lake. They feared a great fear, or they feared a fear when they were on the boat when the storm had happened. They feared when the lake was calm. But when they were confronted with the man who was in the boat with them, that's when they feared a great, a mega fear. And the thing is, is there's a difference, though, between the fear that the disciples had, the fear that the demoniac had, and the fear that the townspeople have. In this country, in the Gerasenes, what they had. What we see here, and part of this is the reason for the title of this sermon, the title of this sermon is the fear that leads to actually the fear of the Lord, the type of fear that is the beginning of wisdom. That's important for us to know because All of the wisdom literature commands us to live in the fear of the Lord. But that word fear has a large range of meanings. It could, what kind of fear is being commanded of us? When the disciples were in the boat fearing Jesus, how were they afraid? Was it a fear that looked more like Manoah? Or did it look more like Manoah's wife? Well, let's see. Starting in verse 1. He gets out, uh, starting out at verse 1. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled. We know they probably fled in fear. And immediately they went and they told everyone in the city and also in the country. The two groups of people, first they're in this region. The Decapolis is the greater reason. 
but they have this city that's on the out that's away from the tombs just outside the tombs there was a couple cities but there's also they reported in the country in the country there is the word agros which you think agriculture these are the rural towns these could have very possibly been the farmers who owned the pigs so you're telling two people you're telling everyone absolutely everyone but specifically you want to make mention to the farmers who lost their pigs and it's to this crowd these cities that then in verse 15 they came and saw when they came to see what had happened verse 15 they came to Jesus but then look what they saw what did they actually behold that caused them to have a fear well they saw the demon possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid this town for many years had been trying to subdue this man we read that they bound him with shackles and chains and him being filled with supernatural power was able to break those chains and shatter the shackles at his feet they bound him hand and foot and it didn't really do too much against him Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 that this man ran around naked for many years at this point that it was a danger this man was a danger and people would go out of their way to avoid this man and what they saw then was the complete opposite Mark tells us that they saw him sitting there next to Jesus not running around on the mountain and on the hillside cutting himself but sitting next to Jesus well, that would have been pretty odd for him he's not chasing them away and then he's clothed this is the first time in years they've seen this man clothed and that was probably you would think a good sight and they saw him in his right mind he was sane see uh, when we look at demonic activity in scripture we do kind of see this sort of pattern we see there's this disregard for personal dignity hence the nakedness social isolation retreat to the simplest kinds of shelter demons recognize the deity of Jesus Christ notice that this demon just like all the other demons recognize Jesus immediately as the son of the most high god the man did not come to this recognition the demon did the demon also controlled was able to control his vocal cords shouting he demonstrated extraordinary strength basically it left this man insane and so at this point we have to say that you know if we send a psychologist back in time they probably would have given him psychoanalyzed this guy and would have been able to put him into a certain category would have been able to say this man is clinically insane and he's beyond hope beyond any sort of you know we can't exactly figure out what's wrong with him physically in his mind but we can diagnose his his problems via his symptoms and he's beyond hope and probably with this town and its resources the best thing they could do is just leave him alone and it's at this point that we have to say that when we're looking back here and especially when we're thinking about even today that we need to make sure that we're careful to realize yes we need to go for all of the physical natural explanations and try to assist people if you would have given this guy some 
anti-anxiety medications, his mind probably would have biologically slowed down. He probably wouldn't have been thinking as much. There's things that we maybe could have given him. You know, a sword would have still killed him if you stabbed it into him. So probably biologically, he could have taken some medications to subdue him to some extent. But that does not change the fact that this man's core problem was that he was in subjection to Satan. Sometimes I think we're a little bit too quick to go to all the natural reasons for diagnosing someone's problems and never go to the spiritual reasons. Not that we should be going and diagnosing everyone as demon-possessed who has some mental illness, because as we read in Scripture, it's a very rare thing for someone to be demon-possessed. But we can't leave it out of the realm of possibility, being naturalist, and assume that everything is a result of some natural mechanism. No, I think we need to slow down at times and say, demons are real. They cause havoc. And it has real biological effects in this world. And we don't know exactly who has it. But you know what? That's, as we discussed last week, demons and casting out demons is kind of beyond our pay grade. That's the role of Jesus. If we saw one in front of us, we probably wouldn't recognize it unless the demon starts speaking to us. So this man, his whole situation was reversed from this. He was clothed. He was in his right mind. See, this is something that the Pharisees did not understand about the work of Jesus. They saw him healing people and concluded, because they, what they wanted the conclusion to be, that it was the work of demons. But the work and power of God came to redeem sinners, came to bring not just their life to some, you know, just to give us a coping mechanism to get through the pains of this life. But no, Jesus, the healing that he brought to people was one that brought full redemption, gave people life and life to the fullest. This man was made completely well. And that's what we're all looking forward to Jesus doing one day. We're not looking, even in this life, we're not looking just to merely cope. We know the Lord Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. That's why we go out and do things. Not because we think it's going to earn us anything, but we go out and work because the kind of redemption Jesus brings to a human life radically changes us, heals us. This is why things like, and I'm, please give me the benefit of the doubt and approach me on this if you have any further questions, but things like Alcoholics Anonymous, kind of give me a pause because at the beginning of every Alcoholic Anonymous meeting, you confess and say, hey, I'm Nick Krause. I am an alcoholic. And you identify with your sin. While I understand it's good and what we do at church every single Sunday is we confess our sins. We know that we still sin. We don't pretend about that. But our sin does not mark our identity. When we are found in Jesus Christ and have the redemption that's in him, we say, hi, I'm Nick Krause. My sins are forgiven. They've been paid for. And not only have they been paid for, but not just the guilt has been removed, but also the dominion. And I have, as a child of God, the privilege and the right to go whenever I sin, whatever struggles I have, which I might have for the rest of my life, 
I know that I can bring them to my Redeemer and he will forgive them every time. And he is able to grant us power over our sin. We have to be able to look at our sin that way, be able to approach it in that manner. See, this is a fear of an awesome power. And this is something that everyone had. Everyone that came to see Jesus, and now there's a fill-in-the-blank part at the end of the bulletin. I don't know if I need to mention that each time, but it's new to me, so I'm assuming it's new to you. At the back of the bulletin, there's a sermon outline. And the very first points here about the fear of an awesome power is that the evidence of who Jesus is is the same for everyone. Everyone sees Jesus' healing power. They all see a testimony both of God's power and also of God's grace. But what is different, while they all should be afraid, which is the response, not all fears are created the same. That last line there in verse 15, their response into seeing this, you think what might be to rejoice in this man's redemption, but instead their response is to fear. And we learn what this kind of fear is in the next section. If this is a fear of an awesome power, which is something that we're all called to, there's a kind of fear that rejects Jesus. And there's a kind of fear that follows Jesus, that obeys Jesus. And that's what what we really see here is that the fear of the Lord, the assumption behind all the wisdom literature, when we're called to a fear of the Lord, we're called to a fear that obeys him. And we're going to look at the anatomies of both of these. So let's look, continue on in verse 16, that those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they begged Jesus to depart from their region. Now, this word here, begged, has come up multiple times in our text. The demons begged to not be, leave the region, begged to enter the, the uh, pigs. Now, the townspeople are begging Jesus to leave. They're begging Jesus to leave them. And we'll see that there's one more begging coming up, and that's of the former demon-possessed man. But what do they beg him to do? Why do they beg him to leave? Well, son, I think there's a couple of different reasons. First is the thing that they saw. And this is the primary reason that we would have seen, that they would have seen. It's the same thing that the disciples saw. They saw, bear witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Part of their fear was the fact that they had seen a man who was unwell become well. A man who was scarily insane become completely sane. That's a pretty scary thing to witness, especially when you look over at the man he's sitting next to and you ask yourself the question that probably the same question the disciples asked, which is, who is this man that even, not only the wind and waves obey him, but even the demons cannot refuse to submit to his authority? But there's also another point here. That they, when they, the reason why they came to him and what they had heard described to him is what not only happened to the man, but also to the pigs. 
this 2,000 pigs, we're not really given too much information about this, but I think pointing it out, at least part of their motivation would have to have been their occasion by their loss. They just lost 2,000 pigs. Now, they probably had a lot more in the whole Decapolis than 2,000 pigs, and they never mentioned specifically the fact that what they've lost is a huge investment. But I think this in part explains why the demons went into the pig, wanted to go into the pigs. They wanted to remain in the region, and they wanted to remain to cause havoc. But demons aren't really too interested in causing the natural world harm. You see, when Satan went after Job and destroyed his house, it wasn't about Job's logs that he wanted to see them burn. No, he wanted to kill his family. And that's what Satan did. And I think we have every reason to believe that they went and killed these pigs, not because these pigs have some escalated value, even though they do have value as God's creatures, but because this was their income. Satan always tries to deceive people and turn people away from the Lord. And it seems like what their motivation here was to destroy at least a part of their economy. The fact that Jesus was there made them not so comfortable. And actually, if anything, financially, they were a little worse off than they were before. So they begged him to leave. See, the type of fear that rejects Jesus is the type of fear that really only understands the power of Jesus. They begged him to leave. See, the the facts, while they do sort of speak for themselves, right? They bear testimony to Jesus' power and goodness. But the only thing that the people understand, and this is the next fill in the blank, I believe, is his power. That's the thing they bore witness to. Jesus had went into a Gentile territory. Gentiles, Jews don't raise pigs. They don't touch pigs. These are Gentiles they're dealing with. Gentiles aren't raised up on the scriptures. Gentiles don't have any anticipation of a Messiah coming to redeem humanity. Maybe by their association with the Jews, they would have some semblance of the idea. But what they knew for sure was they had bear witness to Jesus's power. And Romans 1 actually talks about this kind of fear. And this is the type of fear that all humanity has of God. That through the creation, all of God's creation bears witness to who God is and to his divine power, to his authority, to his strength. But when you look at the natural world, you don't see necessarily, it's hard to interpret his goodness towards you as an individual. Specifically, in the sense of a hope of redemption from your sins, you might have bear witness to the fact that you experience good things, that you have a good life, that you have children and participate in the goodness of the world. So you might have some semblance of his goodness, but as it relates to you and your sins and their guilt, their resources was to go and construct their own God, suppress whatever they knew in unrighteousness, suppress that truth, and worship the creatures rather than the creators, and hope to God that they could burn enough and do enough to earn forgiveness 
a forgiveness that unfortunately the blood and bulls of goats can't actually accomplish. They knew about God's power. And if we just think about it for a little bit, that's actually kind of like us a lot of times. Specifically, when I speak about God's sovereignty, it's amazing how quickly there's an inherent uh, rejection of God being in control of absolutely everything. And what's the first thing that people question? Is it not God's goodness? They say, why would a good God allow what's happening in the world? Why would a good God do this, or why would a good God do that? Are you telling me that God was in control when I developed cancer? When our children died before us? When someone is raised and they're insane? This man, are you telling me a good God allowed this man to live in fear, cutting himself for years and years in isolation, hated by everyone, dejected by the world? Yes. Why? Roman 9 tells us that he did it for his glory. That this man had been suffering all this for this moment, for Jesus to redeem him. I don't want to steal my thunder for the end of this, but sometimes we want to have these sorts of testimonies. Have you ever heard someone who complained that, I wish I had a testimony of God's grace that was so magnificent that I was in complete darkness and I've been brought into light that I was went through, you know, I lived in some sin. And we honestly, we get, we, I'm encouraged by those, seeing God's radical transforming power in a human life. But before you wish that, or wish that upon yourself, realize what this man had to go through. I'll go more into that. I don't want to steal my thunder for the last point. But this man, these people only understood Jesus's power, and they begged him to leave. What then is the difference between that and the fear of the Lord, the fear that obeys Jesus? Well, let's continue. They begged Jesus to leave and depart from their region, verse 17, and then verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, notice that Jesus listened to them. He left. He begged As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Notice that this man, he was redeemed. He experienced God's goodness, and he begged him that he might be with him. And it's using the same word that we saw previously when Jesus selected his 12 apostles. Those who were with him was how he described the room that was sitting around him as they were sitting around and listening to the teaching of Jesus in that house in chapter 3. This man wants to be one of them. He wants to follow Jesus. He loves the Lord Jesus. Why we're told at the end that Jesus, that his task is going to be to declare how much the Lord has done for him. The mercy that he's had on him. He loves Jesus for what he's done for him, and he wants to follow him. And it should strike us. And it's something that actually Steve pointed out to me after the last time I preached this, which is probably the most striking thing about this text, is the first person Jesus says no to is the man who he healed. 
And he had a really good request to be with Jesus in his presence. And I think a quick aside for us, and I hope this is not too much of a stretch, but we often have a no to our prayers. We pray that God would heal our loved ones of cancer. We pray that we would recover. We pray that God would extend our life. We pray that we won't go through so much suffering in this life and that God would relieve it for a time. Those are all good things. It's at this point that we are tempted to distrust God's goodness. It's at this point we have to remember that God's love for us, his goodness has been objectively already done for us. He is so good that he paid for all of our sins. We have the hope of eternal life. We have redemption right now. The dominion of sin has been removed. We have to realize that just like the demons are continuing to reside in this region, that there are struggles that are still going to go on in this life. That pain and suffering is going to go down because the devil roars around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's still at work in the world and there's still going to be suffering in it. And we're, we're in the world. So we're going to suffer. But that should not be a testimony to deny God's goodness. See, the difference between this, the former demoniac understands not only what God has done in his power, but also God's mercy. That should be the last fill in the blank. Also, God's mercy is what he understands. And we can't miss what he called him to. God's good plan for this man was not to accompany him, but to be a preacher of the good news done for him. He was to go to Gentile cities, the Decapolis, Deca, 10. He went home and went through all the region to all 10 cities, proclaiming the, what the Lord had done for him and the mercy he had on him. This is the first preacher that Jesus ordains to the ministry. A man who doesn't really know too much other than who Jesus is and what he has done. What does that say about us? Are we, do we have the right, I mean, do you know enough about God in order to tell someone to come to church at Evergreen? Do you know enough to not just get them to go to church, but to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength? Do you know enough? Well, have you been redeemed? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you know enough about him. If you confess him that he is Lord and that he has forgiven you, all the things that he's done on the cross is paid for your sins, you know enough. Don't let knowledge be a lack or a reason that you don't share the gospel with people. Instead, use every day to know him more. And whatever you do know about him, share. Because you have to know something about the guy that you've dedicated your life to following. Unless you're living the life of a hypocrite. And you're just following him because that's what you do but you don't really know Jesus and you're not really concerned with anyone else following Jesus because 
honestly, you know what, whatever religion they follow, if that works for them, good, but, you know, sewing up to Evergreen every Sunday, that works for me. That's not the kind of Christianity that Jesus calls people to. He calls people to a love and devotion of him. And notice that the man did not miss the connection that we often make, miss. Jesus told him to tell him how much the Lord had done for him and the mercy that he received. And what did the man actually proclaim? What Jesus had done for him. Now this man has come to the same knowledge of what the demon had used to profess out of his own vocal cords, that Jesus is son of the most high God. That Jesus is somehow in a way that we can't fully understand, both fully God and fully man. That's why he follows him. He follows him because of what he's done, but also because of who Jesus is and the testimony that his work in his life has borne witness to him. The fear, what we've seen is a fear that's amazing that everyone sees. Everyone sees bear witness to God's power and God's goodness. The fear that rejects the Lord, though, is one that only understands his power and thinks that God maybe would be out to get him if he does exist out there. But as people who have read already so much of the gospel, we've actually made it pretty far. It might not feel like it. It feels like it to me that this has been moving so fast. But you, should, you know enough about the Lord Jesus to come to the same conclusion that he came to. You know enough about the Lord Jesus to come to the conclusion that he is good. That he is not all, only all-powerful, but all-good. And that fear does not reject the Lord Jesus, but it obeys him. See that this man, we might all want this amazing testimony. His testimony is really encouraging. But just to give you just an application about testimonies and bearing witness to Christ about what God has done in your life, you know, we have amazing testimonies. If you grew up in a Christian home and you don't really remember a day when you didn't love the Lord Jesus, and you followed him all the days of your life. That's a good thing. You have the testimony of this demoniac. You have the testimony of God's transformative grace in a human life who was racked by sin and has now become new. Just because you haven't experienced it personally does not mean you don't have something to bear witness to. You have God's power and God's explanation of it recorded in the words of scripture bear witness to his testimony his experience if you did not experience sin dominating your life praise the lord for that praise the lord that his grace in your life looked like drawing you to himself not allowing you to have the prodigal son type life and if you have lived this life if you have lived a prodigal son life and you have engaged in sin, this man, notice he doesn't allow shame to keep him and bar him from witnessing to people. See, the shame of our sin as Christians is not 
found in our life before Christ. The shame that we experience from our sin now is when we have a testimony that we say that we're in union with Christ. We say that we've been changed by the gospel, and yet we continue in sin. That's the sin that we are ashamed of. And that sin that we're ashamed of, we're told to bring to the foot of the cross, confess our sins, and know that we'll have forgiven, that we have forgiveness. That is an amazing thing. No sin should stop us from sharing the gospel. If we have repentance and faith, that's the type of person God saves. God saves sinners. The worst of them, from the worst of the worst, to the ones that society says, yeah, he's a good old boy. That's the kind of person the Lord Jesus Christ saves. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word that bears witness to the transformative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us a testimony, not of this man. We don't know his name. You've been, you've, what you've given us is a testimony, a witness to Jesus Christ's power in this man's life. Lord, we confess that we believe that you are able, you are strong enough to save. You are all powerful. Your word is inerrant without error, and it gives us a true and clear testimony, not of what has happened in our life, but of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I pray that you would, that your spirit would work in our hearts as it worked to transform us, as it worked to transform this man, that it worked to give us boldness, boldness to share whatever God has done in our life, wherever we have seen his grace, wherever we've seen his grace, whether it's in our lives or in the lives of others, whether it's grace that has kept us from sinning and following after our lustful hearts, or whether it was to keep us safe after falling into gross, grievous sins. And may we, having been saved by your grace, no longer identify with the sins of our past, but that we would see that all the shame of our sin has been removed, that we are now declared sons of God, daughters of God, his children with all the rights and privileges of that. And may we rest and cling not to the promises and the benefits rather that we have, but we'd rather cling to the Savior who dispenses those benefits to us. And may we so cling that we can't help but try to get every single person who passes by us to cling alongside of us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his precious name that we pray and ask for all these things. Amen.